Well, good evening, everyone. Well, well, well. Hello. Look who it is. It's, Back again. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately for all of you listening on Taylor Mall or on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com, once again, it's the Review Squared. Back. But, but spooky this time. Exactly. It is yes. now the 1st of October of 2021. And we're live from the Bill Austin Radio Studio in downtown Phoenix on this Friday night, ready to just get into all the news of the week. It has really been a heck of a week. Oh, it's been a week. I keep saying this because it, I think, just kind of gives the tone of the week, where earlier I came home exhausted, and I turned to my grandma, and I'm like, gosh, it's all already been such a hell week and it's only Wednesday and she looked right back at me and with so much pity in her eyes she was like Kirsten it's only Tuesday Oof. just to give you a sense of what kind of week it's been that's how you know it's like not a good week yeah especially when you mix up the days <laughs> when you're wishing it was further along than it already was yeah never a good sign never once I've done that before and I hate it but you know what the positive out of that is that we did make it through. It is, in fact, Friday. It's first Friday. So hopefully, if you're listening to this live, you're on your way somewhere fun. Exactly. Yeah, go down first Friday on Roosevelt Row and Lower Grand Avenue. There's a lot going on downtown tonight, so have fun. Oh, for sure. Grand Avenue is such a good place to do first Friday. Exactly. And anyways, so let's get right into it today. As per usual, I'm starting... So this week, I'm talking about R. Kelly's conviction on multiple charges of sex trafficking and racketeering in court earlier this week, after years of allegations of sexual abuse. According to the New York Times, the once famous and now quite infamous singer, Robert Sylvester Kelly, was convicted on Friday, sorry, on Monday, I cannot read anymore, on Monday on eight counts of violating the Mann Act, a federal law prohibiting the sex trafficking of minors, and one count of racketeering, which uh, for those of you who are like, what's racketeering? It, uh, Cornell law defines it as illegal activities aimed at commercial profit that may be disguised as legitimate business deals. So that what doing a racket is, essentially. <laughs> uh, this can't, comes after only nine hours of jury deliberation uh, which is quite speedy considering how much evidence was actually put before them. Most of you are probably aware that this has been a long time coming. Everything that led up to this conviction would take the whole show just to provide a brief and sufficient summary of oh, it. The whole show and then some. Yeah, it, it's, it's extensive and we're not doing that. I will spare you the gruesome details because even some of the stuff I read was not... I wouldn't say it was necessarily that explicit, but it was still bad. Uh, and so here is my attempt at giving some context of what led to this moment. A BBC article I found about the case outlined some of the context here, along with the aforementioned New York Times articles. And I pull heavily from the Times here. So back in 1994, Kelly, who was 27 at the time, illegally got paperwork to marry the late singer Aaliyah, who was only 15 at the time. The marriage certificate itself said she was 18. That same year, he produced and wrote her debut album, 
which is, uh, for those of you who are R&B fans, you might know this, age ain't nothing but a number. Yeesh. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we side-eye it now and call it hindsight, but honestly, how do you not side-eye that in the moment? Yeah, it was kind of fishy even then. Anyhow, in 2008, Kelly was tried on 14 counts of child pornography charges after what prosecutors said was an explicit tape of him with an underage girl came out. He was acquitted on all 14 of those charges after the girl in the case refused to testify. This was actually forbidden from being mentioned at the trial uh, that R. Kelly got convicted at this time. Victims of Kelly, women, boys, and girls, testified in court to imprisonment, drugging, and rape. Prosecutors showed evidence of Kelly using enablers to create a whole network to lure victims in, this being where the racketeering charges come in. They called a total of 45 witnesses, but the criminal charges rested on the testimony of six known accusers, one of them being Aaliyah, who died in a plane crash in 2001. Four more women and two men also testified to bolster the case, though the, their accusations were not included in the indictment. Also, people ranging from family members of the victims to the very minister who married Kelly to Aaliyah testified to Kelly having six sick intentions behind his public persona. Evidence also included text messages along with violent and explicit recordings. Which, by the way, R. Kelly mostly produced himself. Isn't that right? Yes, that's what is uh, outlined in the uh, what the prosecutors were showing. Yeah, that uh, Kelly himself made those recordings. Mm. On Kelly's side, his attorneys attacked the accusers, implying at one point that an accuser basically had it coming, uh, so oh. to speak, because she was twerking at a concert. By the way, she was 17 then and accused him of abusing her for years. The attorneys also basically called the accusers liars and obsessive fans. One of the attorneys, Nicole Blank Becker, even gave a closing statement where she was seen to have compared Kelly to Martin Luther King Jr., which is almost funny if it wasn't for the fact that we're talking about sex trafficking charges and abuse. Anyways, I just want to note that the jury remained anonymous through the trial, even to the lawyers on either side of the courtroom, given that this is such an incredibly high-profile case. And the Lifetime documentary series Surviving R. Kelly from 2019 was attributed by a lot of the press who have contributed to the, ki to the wave that led to more victims coming out and speaking out. Mm. This is definitely not the end for this fallen star. He faces another federal trial in his own backyard of Chicago on child pornography and obstruction charges, uh, and also faces state sex crime charges in Illinois and Minnesota. Mm -hmm. His sentencing hearing for this trial, which was in New York in federal court, uh, is on May 4th, 2022. Okay. This is honestly just quite depressing and tragic. I hope for healing for the victims. So to the panel, what do you have to say? Well, as, uh, as a woman and as someone who's had obviously not experiences nearly to the level of these women and girls and even boys involved with this, my heart absolutely goes out to the victims. I... 
I'm so disappointed to hear about the what sounds like victim blaming to me that went on in the courtroom. It's genuinely disappointing to continue to hear this as a legal defense in many ways where it's just we've heard enough of, oh, they had it coming. Oh, they were asking for it. Nobody asks for this to happen to them. Plain and simple. And, you know, it's just funny to me in a way that so many people have in the past few years since the 2019 docuseries uh, Surviving R. Kelly has come out suddenly conjured support for these women where and, and all these victims where they didn't care before, frankly, because people would jokingly or tongue in, in a tongue-in-cheek way call R. Kelly the Pied Piper of R&B. Uh, Knowing full well. Wait, what the excuse me? What? Yes. I, I knew people were basically tolerated his nonsense, but I didn't know about that. Yes. And, you know, there are so many bystanders in this case that it's outstanding to me that not a single one decided to stick up for these women and girls and boys who, for the most part, it's very important to note, were women, girls and boys of color. I'm incredibly disappointed in the public and in the justice system in this one. It's sickening. And that's a personal opinion, but I'm almost tempted to say it's a fact that we need to, those of us who do care, show that care as immediately as possible whenever we think we see something. Because there are so many people who don't. Who would rather turn a blind eye because they have a cool rich friend who's a celebrity or whatever that makes me think of like how much more we don't know of what goes real what really goes on in hollywood mm -hmm. how like like it's really sad to say it but it's probably just not r kelly like just think about how much we don't know about really big fame celebrities in hollywood and what could actually go on in Los Angeles, not even just Hollywood, for example, in big cities like New York, Chicago, London. This even brings back to the Prince Andrew incident with Jeffrey mm -hmm. Epstein. Um, there's just so much we don't know, and it's so sad, um, just especially because of the mindset of like, oh, like they're a celebrity, they're right. big names in the media, and this, that, and it's really sad, and it just... It makes me think back to the interview that CBS This Morning, uh, Gail King, she did an interview with R. Kelly, I think it was like three years ago, right. at like Trump Tower in Chicago, and he lashed out at her. Um, there's like a famous picture of it. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. Was that about. the interview where he stood up and very yeah. dramatically declared that he was fighting for his life? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that. that. Yeah, I wonder if he felt backed into a corner and attacked then, I wonder how his victims must have felt when he was doing what he did to them. <laughs> yes. I just think too often celebrities get a pass. Yeah. Just because, I mean, honestly, that's not even an opinion. That's a basic fact because there's cases where we've seen it time and time again where they get like free passes and this, that, and it's just, you don't know what to make of the situation right. because it's just like, why on earth? with someone with such high power why and you have so many people that look up to you 
I'm not saying R. Kelly, for example. I'm seeing like celebrities in general who like cheat the system right. and like think they can do everything they want. You have people that like call you role models, and I just think there's just such a different per- perception of celebrities versus like a private citizen. Oh yeah, and I mean as evident in the R. Kelly case, and of course this not being the only case where this has happened, but you see the kind of elevated that I mean also. I should note the racketeering charges are actually legal from a legal standpoint, really interesting and not something that's done very often at all in these kinds of cases. And actually him being a celebrity was the foundation of that. Him being a celebrity, having such a network of people and saying, yeah, these people were complicit in this. He used the people around him to lure people yes. in. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 that was the foundation <laughs> of the racketeering charges, which once again, very novel in this kind of case. Right. And if you're at all interested in the ways that that came about, I would highly recommend Stephanie Harlow. I recommend her videos quite a bit, but she does go very in detail and in depth on a lot of the stories of R. Kelly's victims and specifically how he went about um, luring them in, as Gideon mentioned. So I would highly recommend she has a video series about... um, all of his now proven crimes and alleged ones as well. Yeah. And I guess all I can say here is just, this is a horrible, another horrible tragedy, another case of somebody who, I mean, we, who the public has had at least some knowledge of for years of being suspected of some very screwed up stuff here. I mean, the marriage alone to Aaliyah should have just been the, red flag that ended things but he would go on to have so much success i could literally sing some of his songs live on air today that is yeah and i'm not exactly the most pop culture aware person you know so yeah anyways to end this segment i'm going to uh do a little remix to an r kelly song to say goodbye to this now to this dude who is probably facing decades in prison on the charges he was convicted on alone It's the remix to Ignition, R. Kelly might die in prison. So, uh, yeah, I'm never singing on the show again. So <laughs> I was dancing along. It's okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm also not listening to R. Kelly's music again. Uh, anyways. Yeah, don't stream his music. Please do not. Just don't. I understand Just it's don't. catchy, but, yeah. you know, would you rather listen to another catchy song or would you rather support a now convicted what is he a felon now? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, he's a felon, a sex trafficker. Like, yep. I can't even think of a word to use because it's like, Ugh. and yeah. someone who'll be in prison for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, N- non-zero well, chance. Hopefully, I'd, I hope he doesn't get parole. Oh, there, odds I don't know are if he... there's a chance that he will. Very low odds. Let's just say that uh, so somebody with this prolific of crimes and uh, pro- after prosecutors completely bungled the 2008 case and. Some of that wasn't their fault, um, I will say, but some of it was. Uh, after the 2008 case where he got away on, off of 14 counts of child porn yeah, charges. They're not letting this slip. No, they're not. So, anyways, uh, thank you all. Uh, I do hope and pray for the victims. Mm-hmm. And, yes, uh, we, we just remember, be vigilant. Unfortunately, these, these things happen in way too many places. Yeah. And I'll hand it over to John. Thanks, Gideon. My story today is about unruly passengers on planes. So 
When the Federal Aviation Administration, also known as the FAA, enforced mask mandates on all transportation properties and carriers, there has been an uptick of incidents of passengers refusing to wear masks and harassing flight crews that persist. And if you think this was a problem before the mask mandate, it's an even bigger problem now. And now Delta Airlines is actually suggesting that carriers unite to ban passengers from flying. And this is going to become as a whole system-wide flight ban, not just pertaining to one airline. It's going to be all airlines, and they're going to join together, and they're going to create a national no-fly list. Um, And then since the start of the year, according to AFAR, the U.S. Department of Transportation's FAA has received 4,498 reports of unruly passenger behavior and 3,274 of which, or 74%, having stemmed from incidents of passengers refusing to wear a mask. Again, this data is coming from the U.S. Department of Transportation's FAA and the article AFAR. So this is really interesting to me because we've seen all these videos on social media circulating around flight attendants getting harassed for asking people to wear their mask. People won't do it. They're getting kicked off the plane. They're getting on a no-fly list. And this is even a huge problem after the Capitol insurrection on January 6th because you saw that so many people were put on the no-fly list and that they had to actually go on to get extra screening. So I think a lot of these, it's maybe a fair assumption to assume that a lot of airline employees are really done with people not wearing their mask and having to tell people to put their mask on on the airplane because obviously you can't physically social distance on an I mean yeah you can't physically social distance on an airplane so it's you know it brings up the question if whether actually something will be done or not to protect flight workers and um, flight attendants and captains and airport employees because this is a major issue it shouldn't be because it's just a mask but obviously Again and again, this is such a major issue on airlines that usually, you know, you you hope and wish that there won't be someone on the plane that won't wear a mask. But then that just, like, delays the whole flight because you can't take off because someone's not wearing a mask. Then you have to get the authorities. Then you have to taxi. And then you have to get the passenger off. So it's just a whole mess. So I want to know your guys' insights into this and what you guys think. Well, this is just horrible. Uh, People behave. First of all, like, just give me a, just wear the mask. Get like, we said this time and time again, this is completely nonsensical. I mean, John, I've seen reports of like, they're not even serving alcohol on a lot of flights. A lot of airlines are like, we've seen way too many belligerent passengers and we don't want to mix that with alcohol at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I heard too. Like, Which is interesting because we didn't really hear anything about that in years past. It's really been, even with the alcohol, it's really been kind of a pandemic era development, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it is horrible. Pe- like, behave. Like, no, honestly, at some point, it just has to come down to s- s- simple as behave. Mm-hmm. Act like adults you, mm-hmm. and decent human beings. Like, if you're old enough to buy alcohol legally, you're old enough to control yourself when you drink it. 
Exactly. Don't don't be belligerent. Yeah. These poor flight attendants are just doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness gracious. And also I feel like part of it is just the pandemic, like just whatever social inhibitions were left in some people were beaten out. Like basically, I think my broader point than just social inhibition is just the pandemic just screwed up people being able to be around people somehow. Yeah. And this people is the are, worst version of it. People are probably worse now in terms of being kind to people than they have before the pandemic started. Like you'd actually think there'd be like a greater appreciation because, oh, we're going through a pandemic. Like, nah. let's weigh our options here. Now it's, and you see that food service workers, retail workers are dealing with this. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget in the portion of the pandemic where we in the state of New Jersey, we're still not able to kind of have sit down dining as much. I was working at uh, Taco Bell and I had to tell a customer at one point, like I had to tell a lot of customers this, but this particular man um, tried to come in without a mask, which was not allowed. Um, He then wanted to order inside, which according to the state health codes at the time um, and according to corporate policy, more specifically, um, that could have gotten us into a lot of trouble. And specifically on the corporate side, that would have gotten our location at least temporarily shut down. And so when I politely told him that I could take his order outside, he proceeded to call me a lot of words that I cannot repeat on air and um, tried to force his way into the restaurant where my one of my managers, one of my male managers, had to uh, come and basically back me up and be like, hey, listen, you, you can't be doing this. And yeah. it, I think, speaks to the testament where Gideon mentioned these social inhibitions have just kind of left people. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. Moral of the story is be kind because... You never know what someone can be going through, especially a flight attendant who works probably very long hours. Yeah. And couldn't say it better, John. Thank you so much for your segment. And I think we're going to take a really quick break. Uh, We'll be back with the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. Ethan will be here to tell us on what is going on in the broad and crazy world of foreign policy when we get back in a minute. Yeah, great rejoinder here. Some funky music to bring us back onto the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com. I'm Gideon Kariuki. Oh, I'm John Brown. (laughs) And I'm Ethan Helen. And I'm Kirsten Dorman. And that's your panel uh, for those of you who are just tuning in. Uh, And I'm going to hand it over to Ethan to uh, tell us what I think is one of the most insane stories I've heard in the world of foreign policy ever. Yes, um, it is. It's a long. It's a lot. It's a lot. So I'm not going to cover all aspects of this story. Um, but it did just take place. Uh, the the final conclusion, or at least the current conclusion of it, just took place today. So first, I'm going to give sort of the the broader context of what this this take place. So today, a um, a very prominent. Uh, 
human rights and environmental attorney, was convicted of um, criminal contempt of court and sentenced to, to six months in prison. Now, of course, that doesn't sound like a, a massive story, but sort of the background and all of this, which I will explain, will show why this is a very concerning and egregious, I think, miscarriage of justice. So this case is over... Um, a long-running, now 10-year dispute between a human rights and environmental attorney named Stephen Dozinger and Chevron, the oil corporation. The background of this case is that Chevron was, well, actually, Texaco, which was a oil company that operated in Ecuador uh, for, uh, for decades, uh, was sued by the indigenous communities um, in this region of Ecuador that borders Colombia. They, they, were, they had sued Texaco, and over the course of this lawsuit, eventually Texaco was acquired by Chevron, who then uh, in, in essentially inherited the case. What this company was alleged to have done was knowingly dump at least $18 billion, uh, or six, $68 billion liters of toxic wa wastewater and spilled 17 million gallons of crude oil into the rainforest during its operations in northeast Ecuador. Uh, some 900 illegal waste pits, which leached uh, into the water table, um, barium, cadmium, copper, mercury, lead, and other metals that caused widespread cases of cancer, birth defects, and damaged the immune systems and reproductive systems of, of these indigenous communities. For this, uh, this community, which is a very, very poor, uh, this is a, and, and very cut off from the rest of Ecuadorian society, worked with Dozinger and other um, other activists and NGOs in order to essentially uh, build a case against against Texaco and later Chevron. Eventually, this case culminated in a decision in Ecuadorian courts for a judgment of $19 billion in damages against the Chevron Corporation. However, eventually, this case was then reduced to $9.3 billion. Now, this was the largest environmental uh, judgment ever brought. However, Chevron has not paid. Chevron has paid a grand total of zero dollars. They've not paid one cent to these victims. Now, the reason for this is that they appealed to a U.S. court, who then ruled that the judgment was invalid due to what Chevron alleged was criminal uh, misconduct by specifically Dodgender and his uh, his legal team. Now, I'll go into that. So, after losing the case, Chevron vowed that it would never pay. And that it would, in private private conversations, it would pursue a campaign of harassment and demonization against Dozinger and the legal team. In order to do so, they hired a high-profile law firm called Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Now, Gibson, Dunn has been censured all around the world. Uh, the High Court of England censured Gibson, Dunn for fabricating evidence. Judges in California, Montana, New York have censured Gibson Dunn for witness tampering, obstruction, intimidation, and legal thuggery. In Ecuador, Gibson Dunn lawyers even threatened jail, judges with jail if they ruled against Chevron. So they contracted this law firm, and this, this law firm essentially, uh, and Chevron by extension, created a case against Donsinger that, that the misconduct was that he had bribed a judge in order to essentially this, not the judge in the case, but bribed and a judge adjacent to the case to essentially write a judgment against Chevron and then present it in court. 
So this was actually something that was written and presented in court. And what Chevron alleges is that they paid $300,000 to this judge. So this is sort of, that's, that is the legal charge that was first brought against uh, Donchner. However, no evidence has ever come out that this payment was ever made. And the, I will get into it, but this witness who says that he was, he was bribed $300,000, uh, I will get into him and sort of this, that portion of that. Now, Donchner was never actually sentenced for the alleged bribery. And this is a very bizarre case. I mean, like, I don't know very much about law, but this even struck, strikes me as just so many cases where you would think, wait, how can that happen? Wait, how has that happened? That doesn't make sense. Now, for one thing, the people who are prosecuting Donzinger right now are not actual federal attorneys. They're literally privately private attorneys for a law firm that receives financial that has received financial payments from Chevron. So like a, a, a law firm that is financially connected to Chevron is actually the one who was appointed by a, by a judge, by the judge in the original case to prosecute Dossinger. So he's literally being prosecuted by private attorneys. So the judge who did this, his name is Judge Lewis Kaplan, and he was the one who heard the Chevron's case of fraud against, against Dossinger in the United States. Now, over the course of the trial, there were multiple things that stood out. For one thing, Chevron, the, basically like a few days before the trial actually proceeded, they actually dropped financial claims so that there would be no that there wouldn't have to be a jury. So this decision was made entirely by the judge. So there's no like there's no jury of your peers. This is entirely being decided by a single judge. As well, uh, Kaplan was very hostile to Zoginger throughout the entire case. Um, he ordered Dozinger to turn over his computer and cell phone for review by Chevron, which would mean that Chevron would then have access to all of his communications and all of his communications with his clients. So Dozinger obviously claimed that this would violate attorney-client privilege, despite this Judge Kaplan, while Dozinger was appealing that judgment of the order, charged uh, him with criminal contempt of court. And then um, he disbarred him, so he removed his law license and put him under the prospect of having to pay all of Chevron's legal fees. And all through this, all through these, all through these proceedings, Dodginger has been under 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 confinement in his house with an ankle bracelet. So he has, so he's had very limited contact with the outside world and unable to actually leave his home. Except for the except for the trial in a few few cases, wow. Like so, he's being prosecuted by people who work with Chevron, and now I'll get into the, and I'll get into the key the star witness. The entire essentially case is rested on this one witness. His name is um, Alberto Guerra. He is a judge. He he's a former judge in Ecuador. Now. What is alleged is that Dozinger and his and his fellow lawyers paid Guerrera three hundred thousand dollars to write what would appear to be an impartial sort of uh, opinion that was submitted and was a key sort of component of of the original ruling against Chevron. However, uh, this is a direct quote from Alberto Guerrera. 
Yes, sir, I lied there. I wasn't being truthful. This is about being receiving three hundred thousand saying he received three hundred thousand dollars from Dozinger. Wait, I'm gonna interrupt you just to ask, did he say that on the stand? No, he's well yes. Actually, what? he said this on the stand in an international arbitration tribunal. Oh, my brain is melting. <laughs> he literally like says he didn't that he did not receive, that he lied about receiving three hundred thousand oh dollars. Also, throughout this, he's received at least twelve thousand dollars a month from Chevron. He's an official. He has an official like relationship with them. I'm sorry, twelve thousand dollars. What do they explain that away as? Uh, I, I, I. This is why this case How is. How do you explain that away? Oh, we're just giving this guy twelve thousand dollars a month. Why? No biggie. Why would you do that? Oh, just cause. He's received a car. His healthcare expenses. And his family and assistance with his with his family being relocated to the United States, so they helped him with emigrating here. Also, this also uh, Guerrero himself has admitted multiple times that before his relationship with Chevron, he had one hundred sixty four dollars in his bank account, and that he owed hundreds of thousands of dollars of debts. Hmm. To call him an unreliable narrator would be a bit of an understatement. Oh, yeah. The, uh, what is the name of the protagonist from The Catcher in the Rye again? That guy, very jealous as of right now. All right, so, so the key, the key witness is about on, as on, I mean, every red flag, extensive debts. Right. Mm -hmm. Receiving, receiving money. Like, it's actually funny. Tens he, of thousands of dollars. Over the course of this, he's received at least a million dollars from Chevron. So actually, he has received three times at least, at least of what we know, three times more money, three times the amount of which is alleged he was bribed by Dozinger and his colleagues from Chevron. BRB, brain is melting. I, this is what I mean. Like I, This case is such an egregious... And the fact that it's he's not so th this case was so this case was clearly egregious, and the federal government declined to prosecute it, but the judge Kaplan took the extraordinary step of appointing because, so because so he petitioned and tried to get and so did Chevron tried to get the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York to prosecute Dossinger for the contempt charges. They didn't take it; they refused it, and this was under so they refused the case. So he that's why he appointed this 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 private prosecution and handpicked the judge to then take over the case. Oh my goodness. Uh okay. That's that's pretty much like most of the story. I I mean Dozinger has I will be fair. Dozinger did stand to make at least a very significant sum of money from the judgment as the lawyer in the case. And he has been, he, he certainly has been combative with, in, with the cases. But also, I mean, think about this. You win this judgment against Chevron. Chevron vows not to pay the money. So also in all of this, most of the coverage, unfortunately, is focused on Dozinger, who clearly is being persecuted here. But also... All of this community who won this judgment has not received anything. Chevron is getting away with this with a complete impunity. And it's just crazy the stuff that Chevron's done. Chevron made like a fake newspaper and publication to write articles that appear to look like that appear to look like like neutral neutral articles, 
but they're like they literally own it they own and run like this fake website that just basically writes about why Dossinger sucks and that Chevron was was so misharmed and they also they employ have employed over 2,000 lawyers and 60 different law firms in this case and they've spent 10 years 10 years just trying to run this guy out of town yes you essentially but I'm shaking my head yeah um Ethan I'm I'm in Studio A with Ethan, and I yes. half the time he was talking, I was making a face of just complete and utter confusion, rage. It just I don't All even know. All mixed together. Just okay. Uh, so yeah, the appointing of private counsel to represent uh, the, to be the prosecution is not an incredibly uncommon tactic. It does happen. In cases like you mentioned, where the the state prosecutors are like, no, no, we don't want to do it. The way this was done was incredibly funny in terms of, and by funny, I don't mean uh, humorous, as in funny, as in weird as all heck. Yeah, I... Vaguely tragic as well, because this is somebody's life essentially on the line here. Well, yeah, because he's, lost his, he's lost his legal license and he's been under house arrest for three years now. Right. Yeah, no, this is, this is, you know... This is corruption. This is American corruption right here. And you're just having the state kind of sort of hang in the background, say, not our business, as someone is legitimately being persecuted by a corporation in cooperation with a rogue judge yeah. who is completely no. At this point, no, I, I feel fine and dandy calling this the judge a rogue. He is, and he should be impeached. And this is, a, he's... And also through all this, the international committee has condemned this throughout. I mean, just just a few days ago, uh, the working group on arbitrary detention, uh, which is a which is sort of like a court slash research group at the UN, uh, said that it was appalled by the uncontested allegations in the case and said that both Dodgers should be freed and that he should receive basically received compensation from the U.S. government for the case. You can just not make this stuff up. Yeah, and if I wanna, tried. I want to say some people might say like, well, well, you know, this is like insert the developing country here, probably in the Middle East or Africa. No, it's here in the U.S. It's, yeah, yeah, it's right here. This is in the United States, y'all. This is this is America. You're looking right at it. Don't compare it to a developing country. Get those countries' names out of your dirty mouths. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no, I'm sorry, no, gosh, Gideon. Don't don't blow up on air, please. No, Gideon's not, about to spontaneously combust in the studio right now. I'm not going to combust in studio, but don't no, do that, it. that that talking point of well, this looks like insert developing country here makes me infuriated because it's like no this is the united states you're looking right at the united states the country that you know just this year had a an attempted coup in, at the state at the u.s capitol yeah that's the united states not another country this is the country where we have you know uh, all kinds of stuff like what the dozinger case we're talking about here mm -hmm. that is happening in the american legal system the important takeaway is that we just cannot hand wave big issues like this when we see them. I know it's tempting. I know it's easier, but we can't do it. No, we cannot. It is. Uh, and yeah, and it is unfortunate that, you know, the Dozinger case is not getting its due in the uh, in, in a lot the lot of the American press. No, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, you've had like the Intercept and sort of mostly environmental organizations and progressive groups covering it. But there has been that 
uh, like the New York Times had its first article on it uh, like a few weeks ago, but they hadn't covered it for six years. But the, yeah, this has been going on for years. Yeah, it's like if this happened in another country, this would be in the American press. Well, this right. is a big deal. I mean, this is an international U.S. This is an international corporation losing a legal case in another nation, selling all of its assets, completely divesting from the nation, refusing to pay, and then going to its home nation and then using finding a friendly judge and then and then using their relationship with a friendly judge and friendly legal system to escape accountability. I mean, this is essentially, this is really bad. I mean, it is. And just to say one last thing, this is what neocolonialism looks like. This is this is the this is the American empire at work. Chevron is an instrument of it. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna call it as it is. Balls and strikes here. It's neocolonialism. It's exploit people in the developing yeah. world and then come back home and use the protections of big old government uh, here in the United States that has so much power worldwide to protect their butts. Yes. Neocolonialism and imperialism. That's what this is. And it, it's indefensible and evil and everyone involved uh, the judge, the law firm, Chevron. If I were to say where they can stick it, I would be kicked off air permanently. So. I know. We have the long arm of the FCC reaching out, yes. ready to get you. More of that, gover uh, more of that strong government Gideon's talking about. <laughs> yeah, more of that strong government coming after me for uh, saying some funny words. Uh, anyways. All right. And that's my story. So I'll, I'll hand it off to Kirsten for hers. All right. Thank you very much, Ethan. And yes. thank you to everybody for what they brought to the table today. And... First of all, I just want to say happy October, everyone. Um, before I dive in, I want to make sure that I make it clear. It's now officially Halloween month, <laughs> and I'm super excited whoop, whoop. because this and the winter holiday season are really big contenders for my favorite times of year. I, I love it so much. That being said, let's get into today's story with me. Today, we're talking about a fairly recent update in another case that captured the country's attention over a year ago now. So if you'll remember, back in late January of 2020, 11-year-old Gannon Stauk went missing from his home in El Paso County, Colorado. This case was one that really touched me personally very deeply, and it's hard to explain, but Gannon himself was such a bright little boy, and he loved video games and Sonic the Hedgehog. He was a really good older brother to his little sister. He loved sports. He was you know, trying his hardest in school. Honestly, he just kind of reminds me of the kids that I used to babysit when I was a babysitter when I was younger. And this case all begins with Letitia Stouk, Gannon's stepmother, calling 911 to report him missing at about 6.45 on January 27th of 2020. Letitia claimed that Gannon didn't feel well because of some stomach issues he was having and had kept him home from school that day. There's no record of her taking Gannon to the doctor, though. Between around 3.15 and 4 o'clock that afternoon, Letitia claimed that Gannon had asked to go play at a friend's house. When asked afterwards, she claimed that she didn't know which friend's house he was going to and did say that she saw him leave on foot. Closer to 5 o'clock that evening, cell phone records show Letitia had texted her 17-year-old daughter to pick up trash bags, baking soda, and carpet cleaner. Within hours of Gannon being reported missing, local police arrived at the home and search parties had already begun forming. Within 27 hours of Gannon's disappearance, after investigators asked Letitia for Gannon's toothbrush, 
The affidavit for her initial arrest says, in part, that she believed she was a suspect in his disappearance, quote, without any prior prompting from law enforcement or notification of such. Within the first few days of searching, here's what we know investigators found in the home thanks to the same affidavit. Some of what appeared to be blood in the garage and in the trunk of Letitia's vehicle, and what has been called a saucer-sized pool of blood, was found, allegedly, in Gannon's bedroom. Letitia explained these amounts of blood in the garage and on the edge of her truck as Gannon having cut his foot on a woodworking tool that weekend, and according to her, he sat on the edge of the trunk while she bandaged it for him. This story would change in little ways here and there, but the affidavit for her arrest notes that, and this is a lot, but I'm reading directly from it. Letitia lied to investigators on multiple occasions and has unexplained and abnormal behavior such as obtaining a rental car, disconnecting her cell phone from the cellular network for an extended period of time, the false reporting of an alleged rape, abnormal patterns of travel, a continuously evolving story in which material facts in or material changes in facts and circumstances and has left and has since left the state of Colorado. She was uh, in I believe in somewhere in Florida for a while at that point, and she then would eventually be arrested in South Carolina, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. On March 18th of 2020, Gannon's body was found in Pace, Florida, which just added another layer of confusion and sadness to an already complex case, because if you'll remember, we began our story in Colorado, and we are now in Florida. A memorial service was held for him in mid-August where his father, Al Stouk, um, and his grandmother and some others had spoken. And there's one quote from Al who, by the way, was out of town and was training for the National Guard at the time of Gannon's disappearance that broke my heart when I was reading it. And I think it's worth sharing here. I'd been looking forward to his teenage years and the fun we had ahead of us as he became a young man. My little boy is not coming home. We will never play Nintendo again. No more Taco Tuesdays. No more smooth-looking haircuts. No more Big Bubba for my Lana. And no more G-Man for the world. And I, I'm, like, feeling it in my chest as I read that now to you. Because he really was just a little kid. But Letitia has been held in the El Paso County Jail following her arrest in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, as I mentioned, on March 2nd. She is currently facing 13 felony counts, which in summary are as follows. First degree murder after deliberation. First degree murder of a person under 12 by someone in a position of trust. Child abuse resulting in death, tampering with a deceased human body, and tampering with physical evidence. She's also been charged with seven counts of a crime of violence for using a weapon. Here, this refers to a firearm, a blunt object, and a sharp object or knife, which are all classified as special enhancers. And there is one more count of a crime of violence causing severe bodily injury or death. And in short note, because I had never heard this term before, a special enhancement is essentially a factor that enhances or increases the possible sentence for a crime. So in this case, that would be Gannon's age specifically because it is considered to increase the gravity of that crime. After several days, Letitia was ultimately found competent to stand trial. 
or and rather after several delays, this took almost a year, not days. Now, here is some newer information in the case that listeners or people who may have been trying to keep up with it, but perhaps fell off, may not be aware of. Letitia will face additional charges after what reports call evidence deputies found that indicated she was planning an escape from the El Paso County Jail around June of this past year um, of 2020. And here I'm reading almost directly from work published by the Cannon City Daily Record, quote, Letitia's, during Letitia's preliminary hearing, prosecutors presented evidence that she killed Gannon in his bedroom, then initially dumped his body near Colorado 105 and South Perry Park Road before renting a van and driving with her teenage daughter from Colorado to Pensacola. Not only this, but in addition to that evidence, more has come out from the autopsy report, which indicates that Gannon was shot and stabbed at least 18 times. Blood evidence, much of which can be seen in photos included in Leticia's arrest affidavit, was extensive as well, and I do not recommend that you go looking for that. There are defensive wounds on his hands as well, indicating that Gannon did, in fact, fight for his life. The major piece of news that relates to this information is, according to reporting from KDD, sorry, KDAA News, which is a local outlet in South Colorado, Evidence that suggests Gannon was shot with a 9mm gun and testimony from recent court proceedings indicates that a 9mm gun was found in Letitia and Al Staug's bedroom, though there was allegedly more than one DNA profile found on it, as was brought up by a defense attorney. And now just recently, on September 23rd, an El Paso County judge has determined that there is enough evidence to take this case to trial. Letitia must now appear in court on November 4th to enter a plea, and this will be the first time, as far as I'm aware at least, that Letitia will, or Letitia rather, will appear in court in person as well. She did not appear in person for her preliminary hearing, as she told the judge she chose not to after speaking with her attorneys. Although this is and has been an ongoing story for a while, the main sentiment remains the same from my perspective. I really would like to see justice served for Gannon, and I know many others who are listening now and who just are vaguely aware of this case even would like to see. I haven't heard recent events in the case talked about as much as they were back in February of 2020, um, but I am curious to know from the panel if any of you have heard of this case, and if you have, have you kept up with it at all? You know, I haven't heard of it ever since you mentioned it, but... Just hearing all the details is just really, like, just every case you bring to the panel is so interesting. And sometimes you just don't have the words. And just everything you said was just, wow, this is, like, super. I mean, it's really, really sad. But just all the cases you bring and everything that you talk about is super interesting. And as you know, I'm a big crime junkie just like as you are yes. and it's just when you like listen i don't know like when you listen to these podcasts or like when you hear about the details of this case your mind goes like wow like people actually do this it's hard to imagine especially looking at pictures i can't even imagine how people who knew him must feel looking at pictures of him because without even knowing him i see pictures of him smiling and 
just being himself and it's it's hard it's really hard yeah these kinds of things are tragic no matter how you square it but when it happens to a kid it's just it's just mm -hmm. depressing as yeah. all now there is i i think it's just the idea at least in our society you know that crimes against children are just doubly bad like right. it, it, it no matter how bad it is it being whatever it is you insert a child being the victim of it and it it, it just hurts even more right yeah and uh, for by the way i've pr actually vaguely remember this case now that you kind of uh outlined some of the details i do vaguely remember something some case like this probably is the same one from february of 2020 but most yeah. likely yeah so hopefully we'll see justice served. Um, like I said, Letitia will be back in court on November 4th of this year. So keep a lookout for that. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Kirsten, for that. You're very welcome. I'll pass it right back to you, Gideon, because I think we are running out of time, unfortunately. We are. We should be out of here in 30 seconds, ideally. So I'm going to make this real quick. Thank you for listening to Review Squared this Friday evening. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, go ahead and do that. We're on Twitter and Instagram at review underscore squared at review underscore squared. And we're beefing with hypothetically speaking on there. Yeah, we're going to fight them. Oh, uh, what are you going to do? Fight yourselves? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you two are literally on yeah, it's hypothetically like... speaking and you're like, we're going to fight them. We're going to fight them. We, we don't know what you're talking about. No clue. <laughs> Absolutely no idea what, what they're talking about here. Anyways, thank you for listening. You can find us wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you name it. Leave a review and uh, star us, please, uh, yes. on, especially on Apple Podcasts. All Helps. five of the stars, please. Yes. And thank you so much. Have a great week. Have fun this weekend. Oh, I should note, uh, we the this show will not be on air next week. Due fall to, break, baby. Due to fall break. So it, we will be back in two weeks with more. But we'll miss you. We will, in fact, miss you all so much. Have a wonderful two weeks. We'll be back then. Stay well and keep up with us. Hope Bye. you do well on your midterms. Bye. Oh, yeah. Good luck on your Study. midterms. Say yes Study. Sleep. Students. Or play video games. Whatever you want. No. Yeah. <laughs> we, we're not your parents or your professors. <laughs> Bye. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtide.